Welcome to another episode of Single Payer Radio. We broadcast our program from the Habern Building here in downtown Louisville. We are a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare, and we're an affiliate of Physicians for a National Health Program, the Kentucky Chapter. Our current fragmented care system costs twice as much as in other developed countries and delivers worse outcomes. Tens of thousands of Americans die unnecessarily each year because they can't access care. Over 100 million Americans carry medical debt, often leading to bankruptcy. That's why we advocate for a national, publicly funded, nonprofit, single-payer system. Everybody in, nobody out. The views and opinions expressed on single-payer health care are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. Single-payer radio can be heard on WFMP 1065 on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. You can live stream us on forwardradio.org. If you miss a show or want to listen again, you can do this at forwardradio.org slash singlepayerradio. WFMP is an all-volunteer station. We, re- we rely on the community for your ideas and our funding. Join us, forwardradio.org. Doctors Mike Flynn and Gene Shively are back in the studio. Mike? Yeah, this is Michael Flynn, a retired surgical oncologist from the University of Louisville. Uh, let me begin with the usual disclaimer that any comments I make represent my personal views and do not represent the views of the University of Louisville or the Department of Surgery. I'm Eugene Shively. I'm a retired surgeon from Campbellsville, Kentucky. I've been doing rural surgery since my residency. What I say today is my own opinion and not that of Taylor Regional Hospital or the University of Louisville Department of Surgery. Well, our topic today will be the U.S. healthcare industry as opposed to or compared to um, the healthcare systems that exist in almost all other first world countries. Um, our healthcare industry is focused on extracting profit um, from healthcare activities, whereas the other first world country uh, healthcare systems are focused on providing healthcare to their citizens. There's a lot to talk about. Um, uh, I'm going to begin with a focus on. Uh, our healthcare system compared with some other healthcare systems. And then Gene is going to begin uh, to talk about the finances of U.S. healthcare, which, in my opinion, is probably the most important part of this program. And then we'll get into some details and specifics about uh, examples of how healthcare uh, industry. Uh, uh, functions not to the benefit of of, um, uh, of our citizens. Before I get started, let me uh, challenge our listeners not to take what we are saying uh, as absolute gospel or truth. Uh, Double-check our, our facts. Uh, there are a number of 
uh, good resources where uh, information on the internet and other sources where uh, a listener can decide whether we really, really got it correct. So let me begin uh, with a very fundamental question. What is health care? Uh, is this a commodity uh, like the gas that you put in your car or the groceries you buy at Kroger or wherever you buy your groceries? It allows a for-profit company to make money as profit or, or pay dividends uh, to investors, or is this an essential public service and a government responsibility? Uh, basically, U.S. healthcare, uh, unfortunately, is an industry focused on allowing an assortment of entities to extract profit from healthcare activities. Healthcare in most other first world countries is a system focused on providing healthcare uh, to their citizens. Let me just take a few moments and discuss some of the other ways that countries do this. Uh, uh, the Scandinavian countries, uh, the European Union, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Singapore, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, Saudi Arabia, Middle Eastern countries, Dubai, United Arab Emirates, Israel, Turkey, all of these countries have uh, put together systems, usually in, in some way involved in the uh, management by their central, central government, providing health care to their citizens. Um, just let me make a few specific examples of this before I pass this over to Gene. So United Kingdom, they established the National Health Service in uh, 1948. They run everything, universal health care, physicians' offices, the pharmacies, uh, the hospitals. Uh, it, is, it is funded by general taxation and private health insurance is available if a person would choose to, to have it. Uh, both Canada and Australia both established uh, health care systems uh, in 1984. In Canada, it's called Medicare for All. It is taxpayer-funded. Uh, it, it covers hospital and, and physician costs. Private insurance or employer programs are necessary for um, drugs, dentistry, hearing, sight, other, other aspects of health care. And private uh, health insurance for physician and hospital costs is available if the person would choose to have it. Australia, universal health care, uh, multiple funding sources, and private health insurance is available if a person would choose to have it. Uh, Australia has a Department of Rural Health established a, a government department to uh, assure that uh, people living in the Australian outback and other rural areas um, have decent health care. Uh, and uh, at some point later on in this program, we'll discuss 
the, the unfortunate situation of rural health in this country. A couple more quick examples. Japan established universal coverage in 1961. Uh, multiple funding sources, uh, national, local, employer, employee. There are some out-of-pocket costs. Uh, there are no for-profit hospitals. Health insurance is mandatory, and health care fees are regulated. South Korea, 1989, universal national health insurance is compulsory, multiple funding sources. They levy a 6% tax on tobacco, which partly funds the, uh, uh, the health care system. A last example that I will, will give is Israel. In 1995, established a universal medical insurance company. Uh, you can get increased uh, uh, private health insurance um, if you choose. Most of these countries have provide government-run health insurance and allow the, um, uh, the availability of for-profit health insurance or private health insurance if a person should choose to have it. So, Gene, um, you have done a lot of research on the, the financial situation in this country. Um, I, I, and I think this is probably one of the most important aspects of this program. So I'm going to pass this over to you. Well, my original intent, and still my intent, was that there's a huge waste in the U.S. health care system. And even though we spend twice as much money as any other country in the world, and our results are not that good, that uh, there's enough waste to, uh, to pay uh, for a universal uh, health care system. And I'll start off with the total cost of the health care system in America is approximately $4.1 trillion, and that's rapidly increasing. Now, I want to give a disclaimer that these numbers are hard to come up with, and they're uh, rapidly changing and probably changing on a day-to-day -day basis. So I, I don't want to give you an idea that these numbers are exactly correct, but they give you a ballpark figure. So $4.1 trillion represents approximately 20% of the GNP, which uh, represents the fifth largest economy in the world. And it's projected that that's going to go up to 22% by 2027. And just to show you how much money that is, uh, the Department of Defense uh, spends approximately uh, $800 billion a year. And, you know, that's one of the largest expenditure of the federal government. Now... The U.S., uh, as I mentioned, spends twice as much uh, as the rest of the world, and yet our results are, uh, we're number 10 uh, for us, the countries uh, that are the uh, high-income countries. And the three biggest uh, costs uh, 
in the U.S. healthcare systems right now is for-profit insurance, which is rapidly increasing. And it's interesting that their profits dramatically increased during the COVID uh, um, endemic. Now, I want you to understand the difference between for-profit and not-for-profit. I don't think we have very many not-for-profit companies left, but we'll compare it to Blue Cross Blue Shield before they became uh, for-profit. Any excess money that they made went back into decreasing premiums or providing extra medical care, et cetera. Now, for, uh, the for-profit companies, there, the excess money they make uh, goes for administrative uh, charges and uh, for uh, stockholders. Now, I'm not opposed to the capitalist system. Matter of fact, uh, it's the best system in the world. But I am opposed for uh, stockholders uh, uh, making money on sick folks. Uh, I don't think that's uh, proper ethically and morally. Well, capitalism's a good system as long as it's regulated and not allowed just to run rampant, which is unfortunately what's going on. Gene, can you put a number? I read somewhere that the for-profit health insurance companies extract something in in hundreds of billions of dollars out of health care, not being used for health care, but used for profit, uh, administrative costs, uh, the CEO salaries. Um, is, that a, is that a correct number? Well, the latest number that I have in 2020, uh, their profit was uh, $23 billion. <laughs> uh, and it's probably higher than that. Now, the other big uh, cost affecting medical care in the United States is pharmaceuticals. And we are responsible uh, for the cost of half the drugs in the entire world. Uh, Now, we do have polypharmacy, but they have the same problem in a lot of other countries. And in Canada, for example, uh, they uh, are able to bid for drugs. In the United States, Medicare cannot do that. As, as a matter of fact, the law states that we cannot, uh, that Medicare cannot bid for drugs. Now, uh, the VA does, and uh, Medicaid does. And the other big cost is administrative cost. Since 1970, the number of administrators in health care has gone up exponentially. The number of doctors has only uh, uh, gradually uh, increase. Now, you ask, why do we need so many administrators? Well, there are just one example of that is it, it takes a phenomenal amount of people just to run a doctor's office. For example, each uh, insurance company has got different rules. They, you've got to get pre-authorization, and you'll be on the phone for an hour talking to somebody or trying to get a hold of them for an hour uh, just to get pre-authorizations. Different companies require pre-authorizations for different things, and there's no standardized uh, billing. Now, uh, the per capita spending 
uh, all of uh, drugs in this country, and this is 19, I mean, tw uh, 2021 data, is that uh, it was about uh, $1,300 uh, per uh, person, uh, that's almost double the amount of uh, uh, money that uh, was paid in Canada. And they also have a problem with uh, uh, t t people taking too many drugs, um, polypharmacy. The f uh, one of the other interesting things which most people don't know about and is extremely complicated and is almost impossible to figure out is the drug benefit managers. And what they do and how they uh, do things uh, is uh, kind of top secret. Uh, uh, different companies own their own drug benefit managers. For example, uh, CVS owns their own benefit managers. Different other co big companies own their own drug benefit managers. As far as I c can tell, the be drug benefit managers go and buy drugs from the uh, uh, drug companies, and then they sell it and bid it to different uh, 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 drug stores. For example, you may be able to get a drug cheaper at CVS or, or, or at uh, Kroger than another drug company, and it's because of the different uh, uh, bidding that they do uh, for the drugs. Because of loopholes in the uh, 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 patent laws, uh, the drug company sometimes will take an old drug, repatent it, or change it a little bit, and come out uh, selling it at a much uh, higher rate. Uh, for example, uh, just a few days ago, I wrote a prescription uh, for, for my grandson because he had pink eye, and the drug I chose is a drug that's been around since uh, the 50s and that it was going to cost uh, $200. Well, uh, that drug should probably be less than $10. But because of these loopholes and because of drug benefit managers, it's very high. Now, the U.S. drug, uh, uh, U.S. administrative system it's estimated to cost uh, $812 billion. That means that we spend lots more on administration of things than uh, other countries. Uh, for example, in Canada, if you've got an office and you, uh, a patient has a bill, then uh, they, uh, they send it to a regional office and they get paid for it. It's not like in this country where um, if you have a bill, you have to negotiate it with the insurance company, not only private insurance company, but also uh, with uh, Medicare and, and Medicaid. You have to make multiple phone calls. Often that bill's rejected and you have to refile it. And it takes a huge amount of, of, uh, of uh, uh, time for hospitals and for doctor's office uh, to, uh, to collect this money. And therefore, it takes a lot of people to uh, stay on the phone and stay on the computer. Yeah, from an administrative standpoint, um, 
From the mid-1970s to the mid-2010s, there has been an astonishing over, I'm going to say this again, over 3,000% increase in administrators to the extent that there are 10 administrators in this country, and this is, this is information from the um, uh, Bureau of National Statistics, uh, that there are 10, 10 of them to every one of us. And all of the complexities that you're talking about are, are uh, unfortunately related to the fact we've got all of these people who don't work in the ICU, they don't work in the emergency room, uh, they don't give vaccinations, and they're, and they're basically managing the system in this country uh, as, as uh, profit extractors as, as much as they are uh, a system that's supposed to be providing health care. Uh, another example of excess uh, cost in the United States is advertising. It's estimated that the U.S. healthcare system, and that includes uh, doctors, uh, hospitals, and particularly pharmaceuticals, that we spend about $30 billion. We are the only country in the world where healthcare, particularly pharmaceuticals, advertise. New Zealand does allow drug companies to advertise. They're the only other country in the world. It's a total uh, waste of money. Uh, doctors are smart enough to figure out what drug patient needs. And, um, uh, but the pharmaceutical companies, as you, if you watch TV every night, you notice that uh, some uh, programs, the majority of the advertising is about drug about drugs, and if you look up these drugs, they're they're very sophisticated and they're very expensive. Now, I'm not trying to say that the pharmaceutical companies hadn't done a fantastic job in developing new drugs. For example, the vaccines for COVID. Uh, the, uh, who would ever believe that we could cure essentially cure AIDS? Uh, and monoclonal antibodies, et cetera, et cetera. They've done a great job, but they, they certainly don't need to be advertising it. Well, they, they claim, the pharmaceutical industry claims that the uh, expense of, of many of our drugs is based on the research costs for these, develop these drugs and manufacture them. In fact, they spend more money on advertising than they spend on research. Yes, and most of the basic research comes from the federal government. I mean, they contract out with medical schools, et cetera. Well, now, there's, there's a huge amount of potential uh, savings. Um, shall I read all these off or just get to the final number? Well, tell, tell us how much of the amount of money in health care in this country is not used to provide health care. Okay, that is a really interesting number. It's $1,354,000. Now, I have to look at, I, I couldn't sit down and write out that number. I'd have to figure it out. But that's approximately a third of the entire cost of medicine uh, in, in, in the United States. Now, uh, I, I want to emphasize that that does not include the entire cost of the U.S. healthcare system. 
I did. I have never gone back and looked at the cost of EMS, uh, nursing homes, rehab, dental care, uh, home uh, health care, and durable and non-durable medical equipment. And some of that cost is just phenomenal. Yeah, or, but that's the reason we have a healthcare industry as opposed to a healthcare system because that money is is going into the pockets of all of those all of those or those entities that you mentioned the for-profit health insurance companies the pharmaceutical industry um, the pharmacy benefit managers and we haven't even gotten into all of the the invasion of private equity into healthcare which we'll get to eventually, but um, go ahead, Gene. I apologize for interrupting you. Well, private equity uh, is a exploding phenomena that uh, uh, we'll need to talk about. It's just it's almost uh, uh, frightening. So the emphasis has evolved in the U.S. healthcare system, uh, essentially from uh, patient care uh, to for profit, and. Uh, Oh, the, uh, the the system, the uh, for-profit insurance companies, pharmaceuticals, et cetera, have developed some very good methods of, uh, of advertising, of marketing, and convincing people that uh, uh, this is all good. Uh, nobody ever mentions uh, that there's uh, uh, the profits that they're making. Uh, if you could give you an example, uh, I'll bet you that uh, most people don't know that uh, the nursing home near them is now an equity company. I just found out about a year and a half ago that uh, one of the nursing homes in Campbellsville is, a, a, is bought out by an equity company. I had no idea. Uh, and this is the way most of it's being done. The other interesting thing is a lot of doctors uh, are being bought out by equity companies. For example, just in the, since the first of the year, I know of a family practice that's sold to an equity company, and there's a large dermatology practice here in Louisville that uh, did the same thing. Well, Gene, let's let's uh, let's let's kind of go back and start picking each one of these uh, entities and talk a little bit more about them. Let's start with the for-profit health insurance companies. So uh, we have in this country uh, over a thousand. I'm going to say this again: over a thousand for-profit health insurance companies. Each company has uh, 10, 15, 20 different plans that uh, uh, pay that uh, uh, the, the, the client or the, the patient would buy the insurance. Um, good insurance costs a lot of money. Um, you can get some really cheap health insurance that really doesn't cover very much at all. So the patient or the client pays a premium to the for-profit health insurance company with the hope or understanding that they're going to get um, going to get health coverage. And again, the coverage is it varies from almost very little coverage to 
to very good coverage um, with all of the administrative and other issues from co-pays to to, uh, networking to pre-admission or, or... uh, and all of the all of the the aspects of, of of being able to actually get the health care, so this premium then goes to uh, administrative costs, advertising, political contributions, executive compensation, which I think we should talk about in a little bit, uh, just because that's astonishing. Uh, they they invest this money in. Uh, to make more money, and then the for-profit insurance companies call actually paying their claims a medical loss ratio. Just, I mean, the the fact that they are paying for the health insurance or the health care that they claim that they are providing is called a loss. So it is a financial loss to this company to pay the claims. And the money that's left over then goes to executive bonuses, investor profits, and, and, and uh, uh, all of the other things that don't involve paying health care. Uh, one more quick uh, comment about that. Um, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, before it became a for-profit back in 1993 had a 5% administrative cost, and 95% of the money that uh, was, was paid to Blue Cross and Blue Shield at that time was spent on providing health care. After Blue Cross and Blue Shield became WellPoint for profit, 20 to 35%, depending upon what they could get away with in any particular environment, was administrative costs used with all the issues that I just mentioned a moment ago. And 65 to 80% of it was then spent on health care. Medicare, currently, traditional Medicare, not Medicare Advantage or some of those other issues that we need to talk about, has a 2% administrative costs. 98% of, of the dollars in traditional Medicare goes to provide health care. And just to have another example, in the, in the country of Taiwan, their uh, administrative costs for their universal health care system costs less than 2% and more than 98% of the money in the Taiwanese healthcare system is used to provide healthcare. Well, um, not only uh, have the profits and, and the uh, amount of money going to non-patient uh, care, uh, that's uh, dramatically uh, increased. Uh, and right now, the uh, just an example, advantaged plans, which represents now fifty percent of all Medicare. Most of that money uh, is coming from the federal government, either through Medicare or Social Security, and uh, people are attracted to that. 
the reason they're attracted, it doesn't cost them very much, and the marketing's outstanding, and they uh, don't have to pay much up front. The problem uh, with the Advantage plans is that it's good coverage uh, up front, but at the tail end, if you get really sick, you got to go to rehab or to a nursing home, then uh, it's really hard to get those uh, uh, paid for. Well, let's uh, uh, going back to the for-profit health insurance companies. Uh, before Blue Cross and Blue Shield became a for-profit, the CEO made about $500,000 a year, which is not bad. I mean, I think if you make $500,000 a year, you don't have to worry about food stamps, and you're, you can have a nice car and a nice home. Your kids can go to school, and you can take vacations. Let's give you a couple of examples of... <laughs> Of the kind of money that healthcare CEOs are making. Now, this is back in 2003. The CEO of United Health Group, this is a guy named William McGuire, <laughs> this was in 2003, made $94 million and change. $94 million and change. Now, what year was that? That was 2002. That was a while ago, admittedly. So today, we're going back to 2019. Uh, there's a fellow named uh, Alan Miller, who is the CEO of United Healthcare, and his total compensation... He's, a, he's just not even close to McGuire, is $23 million. Uh, Columbia HCA, a uh, fellow named R. Milton Johnson, <laughs> is making $20 million. Now, does this include stock options? Uh, this is the whole total compensation. Their stock awards, their salary, their cash pay, their bonuses, their other perks. Um, there's a... There's Molina Healthcare, $15 million. So, uh, and, and this, is just the, the, this is just the top of the food chain. And the, the, the COO, uh, the CFO, all of these other people are making huge amounts of money. That, and the money doesn't come from uh, designing a better running shoe or making a more fuel-efficient automobile, the money comes from from the the premiums that people are paying, with the expectation that they're going to get health care. So uh, again, I think that we we, we just need to have uh, we we don't have to spend the whole time on for-profit health insurance companies, but this is really important. Uh, because all of those other first world countries, while they may allow uh, private insurance, they don't allow the dominance of a thousand companies uh, running the system the way we do in this company. It's my understanding there are very few for-profit companies in the rest of the world. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I think there are maybe a few... For-profit hospitals in Europe that cater to the very wealthy. 
Well, it's very clear that the main goal, the mission, or the purpose of a for-profit investor-owned health insurance company (laughs) is to make and keep as much money as possible. When you think about the, the, you know, the, the, what, the, what they claim their, their, the actual, the payment of, 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 for health care services is considered a medical loss ratio. All right. Do we have anything else we want to talk about the, that, or should we go on to the pharmaceutical industry? I am. Uh, <laughs> 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 it's one, you know, from the good dad to the ugly. I mean, uh, <laughs> well, let's just talk about a little bit the the regulatory environment in this country. You 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 already alluded to that, and I think this is important because it, it's astonishing when I think about uh, how how how. So we for it we have no system in this country to manage drug prices, and as you mentioned, you mentioned uh, uh, the Medicare. Uh, which is, I think, the largest insurance, uh, health insurance in this country, is prevented by federal law from negotiating with the drug companies. This is an astonishingly uh, stupid economic policy. I I don't think there's any other way to say it. Uh, The VA, the Department of Defense, as you'd mentioned earlier, and Medicaid all negotiate with drug companies. Now, uh, let me ask you a question. Um, you're talking about traditional Medicare. Yes, that's correct. Now, now what yes. about if you have Advantage plan? Uh, can uh, the company you have your Advantage plan, can they negotiate with a drug company uh, for, um, for drugs? But let me just give you an example. Yeah. CVS has Aetna. That's part of their company. They also have a physician's group uh, called Signify Health, which does uh, in-home exams and uh, home health, et cetera. They also recently bought out a large physician's uh, group, and uh, they have a family, I mean a health care pharmacy benefit plan. So... Uh, do we know? Can they negotiate, or, or can they use their different silos to connect with each other? Uh, I don't know. I don't know specifically how that works. Um, I, I thought we'd talk about that a little bit later. We, we, we the, the, the. The, the combination of a pharmacy benefit which just complicates it even more because they, if they can get a drug on a formulary for a certain price and the, the formularies are different than different right. insurance companies. So it's crazy. Nobody knows what's, nobody knows what's going on. Right, uh, and different companies have different tiers, which uh, co- uh, the higher the tier, the more it costs. And if you're on a lower tier, you can almost always get it approved. If it's higher tier, then you cannot get it approved, or it's very hard to get. Now, it. the the Medicare, the traditional Medicare, has a two percent administrative cost. 
Medicare Advantage has a 15% administrative cost. And I, I confess, I, I really I haven't quite figured out how all this works. The Medicare, the way, Medicare Advantage, the way I understand it, is that there, there's, a, there's an agreement between the, the insurance company that's selling this Medicare Advantage plan and the health care facility, whether it's a primary care physician's office or a surgery center or whatever. And, and they, the goal is that they will, that, that, so Medicare has um, a huge database and they can identify based on the health status and the morbidity of, of uh, say, a group of patients in a practice what it costs to provide their care. So let's say you have a group of seniors and you have a high proportion of people with hypertension, cardiac disease, diabetes, you know, just things like that. So that, there's a lot, of, a lot of money there. The, the insurance company and the healthcare facility then uh, agree that the healthcare facility will attempt to provide uh, the care for this group of patients with an identified uh, financial cost at less than that cost. And if they can do that for less, they can then keep 15% of that. It doesn't go back into the system. You know, if they do it for less it, with traditional Medicare, it just goes back into the system and, 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 and then they use it for some other medical cost. That's why they have a very low administrative cost. But with Medicare Advantage, 15% uh, of that that is not spent well, because they're either providing their care more efficiently or they're just not providing care or they're doing something called upcoding, which increases the profit ability by if you code someone who has um, hypertension as malignant hypertension, you get more money. Or if you code someone with diabetes or pre-diabetes as diabetes, they get more money. So the insurance companies and the, I mean, this is what goes on. This is, I mean, right. this is astonishing. But the, the you know, the, the, the incentive there is the fact that they're allowed to keep 15% of this as as a, as profit, which then the insurance company and the medical facility have some. They agree who gets what or how much. Well, another interesting thing is uh, that's happening is that uh, all the big companies are buying physicians' practice. Um, for for example, uh, CVS has bought uh, Oak Street, and that and there's a they have a practice here in. Uh, Louisville, don't they? They have two practices here. Now, most of these groups are just seeing Medicare Advantage plans. And so they are managing these patients. And the theory is that if you can keep the patient out of the hospital, can do wellness exams, uh, then uh, you can decrease the cost of the patient care and 
therefore, uh, they can they get more money uh, because they contract for a certain amount. If you can provide the care for less than that amount, you make money. The other thing is you just talked about upcoding. Well, they do that in a very shrewd manner. Um, they, uh, for example, you were talking about diabetes. Now, most physicians in the past have not screened for peripheral vascular disease unless there's a reason for it. For example, if the patient has a pain in their legs when they ambulate or if they have some other disease that you would think that the patient uh, has uh, uh, peripheral vascular disease. Well, these uh, physicians now are doing either ultrasounds or doing some other type of test to see if the patient has peripheral vascular disease. Well, most people uh, who are in their 80s or 90s will have some form of peripheral vascular disease. If you can do a study that shows that they have minor atherosclerosis of their lower extremities, therefore peripheral vascular disease, they can dramatically increase approximately uh, 45% the amount of money they get reimbursed. Well, most of these patients are not going to have a problem with their peripheral vascular disease. So the, this, and they also add multiple diagnoses to the patient. Yeah, it's upcoding. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, let's and, talk about let's let's focus on this now for a little. Let's just talk uh -oh. about private equity and U.S. healthcare for a while. Okay. Because basically, what we've got is the wolves of Wall Street are profiting from 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 patient care. R correct. Now, so how does that how does that just how does that work? Just you know, as a as a kind of a basic premise, uh, private equity are professional investors. That's correct. And their goal is to raise large amounts of money, and they usually get this by having affluent investors, uh, which who will reinvest that money in an assortment of ways seeking the biggest profit, possible profit. I mean, it's very simple. They, they, right. they, they have no health care to them. is just a vehicle to extract profit. They okay. see it as vulnerable. Now, there's several different layers of this, which I don't quite understand how it works. For example, there is some companies that are for profit, and then they, got, they were bought for an equity by an equity company. So we got a double layer. An example of that is LifePoint, which uh, owns multiple hospitals across the United States. They uh, kind of specialized in rural hospitals. They, uh, two or three years ago, were bought out by an equity company called Apollo. And so how they mingle those, uh, those profits, uh, I don't know. Most equity companies uh, have large investors, which includes retirement plans, particularly large retirement plans in California. They come in. They, uh, the original purpose of these companies outside the medical field was to uh, make them more profitable and then sell them to another company over 
uh, five or six yeah, years. Yes, exactly. But the, how that works in medical care is totally different. Well, well let's talk about that. So we've got we've got private equity in healthcare, which is a represents a fundamental conflict of interest between profit and patient care. So the private equity firm will purchase a healthcare facility, nursing home, hospital, healthcare systems, physician practices, outpatient surgery centers, laboratories, imaging facilities, and they buy they buy the non-professional component and quote improve efficiency. These is not my words, this is their words. They quote improve efficiency unquote. They anticipate a return on investment of somewhere between 15 to 30 percent a year. And as you mentioned, they want to sell it for a profit in three to five years. I mean, this is not meant to be a long, happy marriage. This is going to come in and take the money and run. So how do they, quote, improve efficiency, unquote? Uh, They decrease the staff and increase uh, in nursing homes, they just medicate the patients, they increase the staff, and they lay around in bed. I'm going to talk about that again in a little bit more. They encourage the profit-enhancing activities in physician-owned uh, practices like upcoding. Uh, they encourage referral to, to the private equity-owned businesses. And so let me just let me just talk about one one aspect of this. Seventy percent of nursing homes in this country are owned by private equity companies, which is really scary. Very was, scary. We were staying with some friends in Arizona, and um, uh, the the woman uh, of this couple was telling us horror stories about one of her relatives in a nursing home up in Wisconsin. There, there are horror stories, and again, I would challenge our listeners to get online, and you can read about the horror stories in, in, in uh, private equity home nursing homes. Patients left on toilets, laying on in bed with unchanged diapers. And then there, there, was a, there was a nursing home in Florida where a patient died from a fecally contaminated decubitus ulcer. Now, for the listener, decubitus ulcer is an ulcer you get on the lower part of your back around your sacrum, basically from laying in bed. It occurs uh, usually in people who have uh, a lot of serious medical problems or paralyzed and can't move around. So this person was lying in bed, uh, developed this ulcer, and then got contaminated by feces from an unclaimed, unchanged diaper. So the family uh, was understandably unhappy, hired a lawyer to determine some degree of accountability, and they ran into this nightmare corporate structure. One company owned the building. Right. One company had the license to run the nursing home. One company provided the professional staff, and the other company provided the custodial staff. And I'm not making this story up. This comes from a a New York Times uh, Sunday edition in uh, 2007. Uh, uh, Mark is telling us we're... 
just to uh, adjust your mic there. Oh, okay. We're we're getting close to the end of time, so okay. we may well, be running out of things. That believe it or not, uh, they their nursing homes uh, in Campbellsville, Kentucky, they're structured that way. Oh, I believe it. I they're nursing homes all over the country. <laughs> And I think it's scary to think about the prospect of, of you know, having your, your, your mother, your grandmother, or one of your relatives in a situation like that where, where they're, they're, they're basically just going to be laying around. Uh, the story I was told, we were down in Arizona, they, they, there was a person having some dementia, and, and they would... They would they would just lay food in front of this person. They didn't feed her, and they put some vegetables and stuff, and they would just lay around there. And the family had to come in, and 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 they would they 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 finally brought some, uh, you know, things like applesauce and things like that. And and the, the the person was so hungry it was like feed it was like feeding. They said it was like feeding a bird. This is a serious issue, and it is a classic example of the conflict of interest between uh, the profit seekers and the ability to provide patient care. No, Mark, no. We, we're about the end of the uh, line of the lollipop here. Gene, you want to make a few for final yeah, comments? Yeah. And I think While we're we'll talking about equity session. companies, there are the two major uh, companies that provide coverage uh, for emergency rooms around the country. Um, they dramatically decreased their costs by hiring uh, PAs or nurse practitioners instead of physicians uh, in the emergency room. Uh, well, we'll talk more about these issues uh, at another time. Sure. Okay, guys, uh, a lot of sad but very important information. Um, and, and I'll just repeat a, a note that I said a few weeks ago that the healthcare industry spending on federal lobbying rose 70%. That's seven zero from 2000 to 2020. And that's according to uh, new research from the Journal of American Medical Association Health Forum. So it, it appears the foxes are in the Henhouse. They're in the fen henhouse, the farmhouse, and the courthouse. Yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, uh, I remember a, a teacher told me once: people do what you inspect and not what you expect. And <laughs> and with regularity, there's inspection of the Medicare Advantage program and. With those inspections of the program, there's more and more fraud discovered. Yes. If, if you really want uh, interested in um, the greed in healthcare, there's a fascinating article in the uh, JAMA, which stands for the Journal of the American Medical Association. It's only about a two-page article, but it's, uh, it talks about the existential threat of greed in the United States healthcare system. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good good place to end. Yeah. For more information about Kentuckians for single-payer health care, you can go to kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. You can email our uh, chairperson, Kay Tello, at nurse 
N-P-O at A-O-L.com. The, uh, the group, uh, we stretch from eastern Kentucky to western Kentucky. Uh, most of us are based here in Louisville. Case sends out a newsletter twice a month. It's just jam-packed with information about how you can become involved with a group and take your frustrations with the system and put it into action. Uh, Kay and the group have some, uh, some uh, good projects that are cooking right now. Uh, one of the ideas was getting some uh, referendums on local and in uh, local communities to pass uh, Medicare for all referendums for single-payer health care uh, and Mike, doctors Mike Flynn and Gene Shively. I'm Mark McKinley. Thanks for listening.